0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 2, let me first off just apologize for any little Cough clearing or sniffles. I've got a little bit of a head cold. I feel fine, but um I just am my nose is running, my throat is scratchy, and I pray that it's not a distraction to you. We are in the beginning parts of our sermon through the letter of Hebrews. We're in chapter two. Last week we looked at verses 10 through 13. This morning, as Robert mentioned, we're gonna look at verses 14 through 18. Boys and girls, I'm really glad that you're here. I want you to do your best to pay attention. There's going to be some words that we talk about today that might be a little above your head, but that's exactly how you learned English. Every day around the dinner table or at school, people use words that you don't know, and that's how you learn. And today, I'm going to use one word in particular that you may not be very familiar with, and I want you to ask your parents a little bit more about what it means later on today or in this week. Okay, here's my plan. I think our text this morning, verses 14 through 18, begs a question, and really the whole point of the sermon I want to be is to hopefully answer that question, okay, but before we get into verses 14 through 18, that's our main text, really verses 14 through 15, and next week we're going to look just at the end of verse 18, so three sermons in verses 10 through 18, That's, that's, that's slow pace. But I want us to read all of 10 through 18 just to reorient us. This, I think, is the heart of the argument of Hebrews. And remember, Hebrews is more of a sermon than it is a letter. It's a sermon of the preacher who is speaking to these Hebrew Christians. In other words, ethnically Jewish Christians who, because of increasing cultural persecution in Rome in the first century, are tempted to maybe go back to Judaism, back to the Old Covenant, because that was accepted in Roman culture in Rome in the first century. There wasn't persecution of Jews in the first century in Rome, but there was of Christians. And so the writer of Hebrews is wanting to show them how Jesus is better and he's worth it and to draw near and to hold fast to Jesus. And I think, so he's going to use throughout the letter, a comparison of Jesus to the Old Covenant. He's the New Covenant and he's better. And I think... Hebrews chapter 10 verses 10 through chapter 2 verses 10 through 18 is the very heart of his argument. So let me read starting in verse 10. For it was fitting or other translations say entirely appropriate that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. So that's God the Father in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. So the Father's doing something to the Son. He's making Him perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And brothers and sisters, I still can't get over this part. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed of you if you are in Christ. Saying, and here's the picture from Psalm 22, he quotes, the author does, I will tell of your name. So this is Jesus. Singing the words of Psalm 22 to us, to God, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So here's the picture. Jesus, in his incarnation and his work, comes down to earth. He puts his arm around his brothers and sisters. He says, I'm not ashamed to call you my people. And he sings to God, not from heaven, but in the midst of the congregation of sinners that he's redeemed. These are my people, God. That's good. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Okay, that was last week. This week, verse 14, here's our text. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one. to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, help us to understand this. Help me to explain it faithfully. I pray that you would help me be economical in my words to the point. I pray that I wouldn't babble with unnecessary chatter. I pray that I would get straight to the point and I pray that the words that I speak would go straight to the heart. And I pray that it would, they would be true and in line with what your spirit has written and I pray that the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit would blow through our hearts and for Christians in this room that we would be changed and sanctified by the truth of your word, made more like Jesus. And my friends that are here today that do not know you, I pray that you would give them what you require of them, which is a new heart that has faith so that they can trust in Jesus and be reconciled to you. Be glorified, I pray, Lord, during our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want us to just work through these verses, primarily verses 14 and 15. Let's look at verse 14 again. I want to make sure we understand this, and I think there's a question here. In the middle of verse 14... The writer of Hebrews makes this statement that Jesus, through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death, who is the devil. What does that mean? What does that mean, and how does Jesus exactly do that? And if we understand the answer to that question, I think we we really are well on our way to understanding the very heart, not only of this passage, but I think of the whole message of the Bible. So verse 14, since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. So that's speaking about us. He's he's talking about humanity here. He's speaking. He's going to, in just a moment, bring up this concept, which is already laced throughout Hebrews chapter 2, the idea of the incarnation of Christ, that God the Son, fully God, became fully or truly man. So he's saying that since because we are flesh and blood. And by the way, we could just sort of build out a theology of man on that. All of us have a commonality. We're the same. You know, we may have different pigmentations. We may have different languages. We may come from different cultures. We may prefer... Some of us root for for football teams that all they do is win and they go to the AFC Championship every year and then they go to the Super Bowl. And some of us root for teams that don't make it to the Super Bowl, Dylan Love. But nevertheless, we... As far as the most important things in this world, we are all the same. We all inherit this sin nature. And regardless of where we come from, we are all brothers and sisters. We are all together in this flesh and blood. Make no mistake, all of us descend from the same parents as Adam and Eve. And we, by nature, have all inherited their sin nature, by nature and by choice. And we, by nature, at birth are born in sin, and we're born frail, and we're born opposed to God. That's who we are. That's what it means to share in the flesh and blood. And because of that, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus likewise, partook. He shared of the same things. Let's let's make sure we understand just the power of what's going on in the second half of this sentence, that Jesus became like us. He partook of the same things. Just for a moment, I want us to stare at and wonder at the inscrutability, the beauty, the the incomprehensibility, in one sense, of the truth of the incarnation. In fact, it might be the most stunning and beautiful and incomprehensible truth of all, that God, fully God, God the Son, became man. This is the same God that in Hebrews chapter one, is the creator of the universe. He's the exact radiance of the image of God. He upholds everything by the word of his power. And here it's saying that that son, God the son, partook. He shared the same things as we are yet without sin. Now, here's what I I, want to develop in us, a kind of instinct as a church. I think many of us have it. And I want to cultivate it more in my life and in your life. We've been talking about this in our pastoral staff meetings when we encounter difficult truths. Uh, Sometimes there's a tendency when we look at deep and incomprehensible truths like, for example, this nature of Christ, fully man, fully God, or maybe the sovereignty of God, or the, the, the relationship of God in his sovereignty with human responsibility. There can be a tendency to see those truths and to see obvious tensions in the Bible and in our lived out experience, and to very quickly just sort of throw up the white flag of, well, this is very difficult to understand, and so I'm just going just to just sort of chalk that up as a mystery. I think that what, what I'm trying to develop in us is a, a, a tenacity to not sort of throw up that, oh, well, this is really hard to understand, and so I just, I'm just going to set this aside as a kind of unknowable truth. In one sense, God is inscrutable. He can never be completely explained. He in that sense is mysterious and incomprehensible. But that's not to say that he has not in fact Robert I think quoted it in his prayer this morning that he is giving us he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So in one sense, even though God is transcendent above our understanding, He also has revealed himself, he's imminent, he's here, and he's given us knowledge that we can know him as much as we need to know him for life and godliness. So when you're thinking about a difficult truth like the incarnation or the nature of Christ, I want us to develop this instinct to know as much as we can know, as much as the Bible says about those truths, no more and no less. So I want you to think of truths, difficult truths like this like the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, think of them in terms of two lines that run parallel to one another. So here we have the deity of Christ, God the Son, eternal with the Father, creator of the universe, no beginning, no end. That's obvious, that's easy to see. And then we have the humanity of Christ. He becomes like us. He is. He's he partook of the same things, yet without sin. He's tired, he's a... Think about this. He's, he's a little baby who needed to nurse at his mother's breast. He needed to have, oh man, <laughs> my, my grandchild Roman is going to be one in a couple weeks, and he's almost walking. He's almost walking. And he needs his mommy and daddy's hand to help him take a couple steps. I love watching it. One day he's gonna walk, and we're just gonna we're gonna be like, "Romy, you're walking, baby, you're walking." But consider this: the creator of the universe needed the same steadying hand of his mother that my one-year-old grandchild needs. So he's 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 sovereign. He's he's the he's the creator of the universe, and yet he's he's this child who needs to be fed and held and goes through all of the biological and physical developments from a from in the womb to adulthood that everybody in this room goes through those things are stunning how do you piece those things together and what i want us to do is see these things in the bible and though on our perspective from our perspective on this side of eternity those two lines may never intersect. They do. How do those things, how can God, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? I can't completely put these things together, but I can see the beauty and the glory and I can revel in this that he partook of the same things. God, truly God, became man, truly man, and shared that with me. That's stunning. This is how Christians of old put this together. I just want to read this. I just want to give you a little language. This is from the 2nd London Baptist Confession of Faith. Christ the Mediator. Just, just, I want you to just give you, I want to give you some language. It says that the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. That means that the Son is fully God. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, He took upon Himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, He was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of Scriptures. Okay, now listen to this. This just just takes us This takes these lines all the way, as far as we can see, and then it just takes us to the edge and says, okay, that's all we can know. Let's just see that. It says, two, speaking of Jesus' nature, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Without converting one into the other, or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature, This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Amen. And that's what that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying about Jesus here. So he says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus became like us and he shared in it with one important distinction, yet without sin. Without sin. And what's the next phrase Say That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay, what does that mean? So how exactly does Jesus destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil? Well, let's look at the second half of that portion of the sentence. It's a long sentence. But let's look at the second half of that phrase. And I think that will shed light and help us understand the first half. What does it mean that the devil has the power of death? Because don't we rightly believe, and this is true, that God is all powerful? So in what sense does the devil have this power of death? I mean, we read in Psalm 139 that God has ordained all of our days before one of them came to be. God knows the day of your birth. God knows the day of your death. He is in control. The universe, everything that is in the Bible, is not presented as a kind of cosmic struggle between good and bad, as if they're dual equal forces, and Jesus barely wins in the end. No, the picture of humanity, the picture of the universe, the picture of creation in the Bible, is that God is utterly, Exhaustively, comprehensively, in control. Psalm one, fifteen, verse three: Our God is in the heavens; He does whatever He pleases. Psalm, Isaiah forty-six. I, I think it's in Isaiah forty-six. Somebody fact-check me later. It says something along the lines of that He knows the beginning from the end. So that that's that's the. Bigger truth. So what's going on in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that he's calling the devil the one who has the power of death? What does that mean? Why does the devil, how does the devil, in what sense does the devil have the power of death? Well, here's my best explanation at it. The devil's power of death, it's a it's a granted power, it's a it's a derivative power, it's a derivative power, it's something that's it's like a sword. That's been handed to him and I think better, better, more than a sword. I want you to think of it as a it's like a tongue that has been handed to the devil. Because death, death in itself is a consequence of sin against God. Death is the penalty for sin against God. We read that in Genesis chapter three. We read that in Romans chapter five, that death, separation from God, not just physical death, but ultimately eternal separation from God, which is spiritual death forever. The second death, as the Bible talks about, is a consequence of mankind's rebellion against God. And in a sense, in a temporary kind of way, the devil has a kind of power Because he merely is there as our adversary and our accuser to remind us of the consequences of our sin. So let me read to you from from Revelation chapter 12. I'm going somewhere. I want you to see this. Revelation chapter 12. We looked at Revelation last Wednesday night, just kind of how to read Revelation. Um, And let me just kind of drop down in the middle of this important verse in Revelation 12, which is a picture of John a picture of the end. And this is what he says, something very important about the devil's power in the life in our lives. He says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, this is speaking about the final victory of Jesus. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ, of his Christ have come. Listen to this. Listen how he describes the devil. For the accuser... Of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. By the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. So what is the devil's relationship with death? He merely has the authority to accuse us and remind us of the consequences of our rebellion against God. That's the devil's primary power. Nobody goes to eternity separated from God because the devil sends them there or because they've been attacked by the devil or they've been shot at by the devil. We, if a person spends eternity separated from God, it's because we have sinned against the holiness of God. So then what is this text saying about Jesus and how he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil? How does he do that? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 17 of our text. Therefore, this is back to Hebrews 2, how does Jesus destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, and here's this word, boys and girls, that I want you to know, I want you to wrestle with, I want you to talk to your parents about, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I know that every few weeks this word propitiation comes up here. And uh, I am not ashamed, and I am not uh, shying away from the fact that uh, if, if at the end of your time of coming to Crosspoint or my time being your pastor, if the one thing that can be said about my teaching ministry is that people that listen to me understood the word propitiation, I, that will make me happy. This may be, I know I have a penchant for hyperbole. This may be the most important word in the New Testament. In fact, J.I. Packer, a noted British theologian, wonderful man of God, wrote one of the great books of the 20th century called Knowing God, which I highly commend to you. He was uh, just a wonderful, sweet, wise writer, author, theologian, He passed away just a few years ago. He said that if he had to summarize the New Testament in three words, if he had to summarize the message of the gospel in three words, he would summarize it by saying adoption through propitiation. Or in other words, how God makes orphans, adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. So what does propitiation mean? It's what Jesus has done In service of God it's what he did well how what does it mean it means that Jesus let's look at verse 17 he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that's the incarnation he becomes like us human righteousness has been lost in the fall it's been lost by Adam and Eve it's been lost by all of us not just by our nature but by our choices we are sinners and our sin demands Death, it demands the wrath of God because God is holy and he cannot go against his nature. He cannot abide with rebellion. Now, at this point, you may have lots of questions about why God would even create a universe where that is even a possibility. And I share your questions. Those are legitimate questions. They are questions that the Bible actually brings up itself. In fact, I think Paul answers that question. Maybe not to our satisfaction, but he answers that question in Romans 9 when he basically just says, hey, listen, I understand the question. Why would God create a universe that could fall? And basically, Paul's answer to that question in Romans 9 is, God has done that to further and in a maximum way display the glory of his saving grace. And so basically, Paul answers, I think that legitimate question that we might have, why would God even allow evil that he would need to save us from? And Paul's answer to that is to display his glory. But the point, back to Romans, Hebrews chapter 2, little, little rabbit trail, back on track now. What's the point of propitiation? God is holy. We have fallen. Jesus, mankind has lost his righteousness. Jesus needed to become a man to restore to not just bear the penalty, but to restore human righteousness. So God deems, finds it fitting, says it is entirely appropriate for the Son of God, very God of very God, to become a man and to become like us. And where we have lost our righteousness, where we've lost our obedience, where we have lost our ability to right stand with God, Jesus recaptures it through his perfect obedience, through his sinless life, and through his suffering, his sacrificial death on the cross. And here's where this word propitiation is so important. It means that Jesus in his work on the cross is absorbing, he's satisfying, he's extinguishing, he's removing The condemnation that should have been ours. That's what Jesus has done. He takes away God's wrath. He satisfies it. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. We are therefore no longer condemned if we're in Christ. Because what Jesus does in his service not to the devil. He's not paying anything back to the devil. In his service to God as the high priest, he comes as fully man, representing man to God, but as fully God, representing God to man. He stands in between the two. He lays down his perfect humanity. He lays down his eternal righteousness, and God's holiness God's judgment is satisfied that's the first half of propitiation on the cross and now the judgment is extinguished but not just that, now all of the righteousness that Jesus has won back through his obedience to God perfectly is now given, imputed to us. So the priest, not only, this perfect high priest, not only takes away the punishment for sin, he gives back the righteousness that has been lost. That's propitiation. And so what, how does verse 17, how does Jesus, this high priest, Who propitiates, who satisfies the penalty and restores righteousness. How does that connect to verse 14? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. It's because... Our biggest problem is not the devil. Our biggest problem is the holiness of God. Our biggest problem is death, eternal death, which is separation from God forever. But propitiation, the cross, has solved that problem. And if the devil's only weapon is accusation... When the basis of that accusation has been removed, he has nothing more to accuse us with. Do you see that? Do you see that? See, here's the problem. We gotta admit something. And I'm gonna say something that's gonna sound heretical, but stick with me for half a second. The devil's accusations of God's people are true, but they're only half true. That's right. I am a filthy sinner by nature. That's right. That's who I was. But if you're in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. Because it's been removed. And so how does Jesus destroy the devil? He defends him. He takes away his ability to accuse. And he throws down the accuser of the brethren. You see, let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. I want you to see this. I want you to see this. Verse 11, verse 10 of Revelation chapter 12. You can put it back on the screen. Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. Listen to this. For the accuser of our brothers. That's the only thing he can really do is remind you of your sin or make you wallow in your sin. Or make you feel like that is the truest thing about you. But what has the cross done? What has propitiation done? How has Jesus destroyed the one who has this temporary accusative power of death? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down because of the cross. He who accuses him day and night before our God. Now listen to this verse 11. See this. And they have conquered him. And notice the two things that John rest is conquering on. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. So in other words, the blood of Jesus on the cross answers the holiness of God and by the word of their testimony. And those are one is the consequence of the other. Do you see that? The blood has, has answered the charge against me. I no longer in separated from God. What was true of me is no longer true. And now I know it. And now I have something to say to the accusation of the devil. Because you know what? The things that were true about me before I came to Christ, they still happened. It's still, my sin is still real in the past. And the, the sin that I struggle with today is still real. But there's something bigger. Jesus is death on the cross, and the word of my testimony that says to the accuser, no, that's no longer true. And I think that's what's going on in verse 14. Do you see that? How does Jesus destroy the one who has the power of death? Through, it says it there in the text, through death, he might destroy the one who has this sort of secondary, derivative power of death that is the devil. So think think about this. We all know these movies, these, you know, the Braveheart movies. Let's paint ourselves blue, wear leather tunics, and run up a hill in Scotland with a bunch of other people that look like they haven't showered in about six months, and let's fight. Those are wonderful, right? Wonderful. And all these people sort of die Hundreds and hundreds die, but the one stands at the end and, you know, we, we, we are victorious. But it's actually, here's the, here's, here's the picture here, is that Jesus destroys death, but the only one who really sheds any blood in this victory is Jesus. So that's why the famous Puritan author John Owen, back in the 1600s, wrote this famous book. It's really long, and it's really hard to read, and I'm not necessarily commending it to you. I think it might be helpful, but I think actually you can get blessed just by the title of it. Just the title. Sometimes just the title of things bless me. And here's the title of John Owen's book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Think about that just logically. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And so, Jesus, through his death, he has defanged the devil. Or or, or better said, he has cut out, he's cut the tongue off the devil. He can no longer accuse you. He can no longer accuse you, dear one. And by the way, we're going to get into next week how he helps us because you know, I think that's true, but boy, don't we forget that on Tuesday. And so we're going to look at how Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. And, and the title of the sermon next week is going to be, How to Have a Better Tuesday. So, so come. Finally, I'm going to answer the question I've been asking for 18 years. How to have a better Tuesday by remembering the gospel in Christ. Do you see this? The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down here's another picture I want to give you Colossians chapter 2 Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 listen to this picture it's the same picture it's similar to what's going on in Revelation of how Jesus cuts off the tongue of our accuser that's the only power he has is to make you think that the truest thing about you is your sin or that's who you are when it's not true if you're in Christ he has propitiated your sin and now the truest thing about you the victory has been won and death has died And this is what Paul says in Colossians. Colossians 2 verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Death has been defeated. The death of death and the death of Christ. God made alive to you. It doesn't mean that you won't physically die. You will die. We're going to talk about that in just a second, in a moment. But you will live with him forever. You will be resurrected. God made you alive together with him. Listen to this. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now here's the picture. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So here, think of it. Here's the devil. He's like that little punk accusing. He's like the witness in the courtroom. And what's been nailed to the courtroom door is the accusation of all the things where we have sinned against God. And you know what? Here's the thing we need to admit. It's true. It's all true. It's true. That's who. Yes, I did those things. I did those things and the judge walks in to the courtroom and he sees the, he sees the accusations that have been hurled against us. He sees it all. He says, yep, that Brad did that. I remember that. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. But, but Paul says by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so Jesus takes his righteousness. And he nails it to the cross and he takes our sin and he puts it on his shoulders. And now my sin, that legal document, my disobedience, everything that's true of me has been nailed to Jesus and Jesus satisfied. He took the penalty. He served the sentence. And now my sin is gone. It's no more. So the picture is the devil has been detongued. He's been defanged. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's, friends, that's how. I hope I don't need that page of my notes. That's how. <laughs> now we're coming to an end here. That's how. That's how he destroys, through death, the one that has the derivative, the granted, the temporary power of death. That is the devil. One more verse and then we're going to land this plane. Verse 15. <laughs> and, and deliver. And deliver. All those are deliverer. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he delivers us from the fear of death and lifelong slavery? Because remember, he's he's detongued, he's defanged the accuser. What does it mean that he delivers us from the fear of death? Well, what do people fear most? We, we fear death on some level. Why, though, do people, why do even unbelievers, I, I think this is like, There's that verse in Ecclesiastes, I believe it is, uh, that says that eternity is written on our hearts. And I think that's just what it means to be human. And that's why I think every person on some level, especially unbelievers, uh, fears death because they know that judgment is coming. Even on a subconscious level, people know judgment is coming. And they may not be conscious of it, but it sends them into this sort of subconscious fear of death, really, which is ultimately the fear of meeting your Maker. Sends people into lifelong slavery. What does that mean? Well, I think I think the, the application that came to me is that this lifelong slavery—we we we run into all of these things. We just run towards whatever it is—the latest this or that—to. Trick ourselves to numb our spirits to make us think that death isn't coming to postpone, and so we run into lusts, into money, into power, into whatever. And all of these things are just like temporary medicines that in our minds just make us feel younger. That's why you look at these people, these Hollywood stars, or whatever and these people in their 70s and 80s and 90s and their face looks like it's been like a piece of cellophane is put over it because they're trying to remain younger and they just look like they just look ridiculous because they're trying to postpone the inevitability of death and make themselves feel younger because they know it's coming and it's a kind of slavery this desire we have to stay young and vital it's a kind of slavery And Jesus delivers us from that because underneath that slavery is the fear of standing before the judge. But if the sentence has been removed, what do we have to fear? Now friends, make no mistake, death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. But it is merely a river we must pass before we get to the heavenly city. Here I end with this. There's this one. I mean, some of you have read the book, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, It's, I believe, I believe it's the second most published book in English in the entire world, next to the Bible itself. It was written by John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan. I don't think there was any relation. Maybe there was. I don't know. Is Paul Bunyan a real person or was he? I don't. Anyway, yeah, all right, I'm going to get emails on that. I forget that. <clears throat> John Bunyan was a real preacher in England back in the 1600s, and he was imprisoned for his faith. And he wrote this famous, famous, maybe the most famous of all Christian allegories called The Pilgrim's Progress. And it's, many of you in this church love this, this book. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful picture. It's an allegory. The main character is named Christian. And he encounters all of these geographical places and friends or foes that are named different things in the Christian life. You know, to, to kind of be an allegory of the journey, the progress of the pilgrimage of the Christian life. And he's going to the celestial city, which is heaven. And towards the very end of the book, he's with his friend named Hopeful. Hopeful. What a name. And Hopeful's there to encourage him. And it's towards the end of the book. And Christian has made it through all of these things. All of these, the, 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 the pond of despair and all these mountains. And he's, he's at the edge of the river, the celestial city. There's no bridge. And he's at the edge of the river, the final river, the river the river of death that Christian must pass over. And Christian is afraid to pass through the river of death. And his friend Hopeful is with him. And Hopeful is wading into the waters of the river of death that they must pass through to get to the celestial city. Hebrews 9, is appointed unto all men to die once. And after that comes the judgment. And when we're in Christ, we work him forever. But Hopeful is wading through. Hopeful's a little bit ahead. Christian's there wading through. Christian wades into the waters. And he says to Hopeful, he says, Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sinking. I'm sinking in deep waters. and, And the billows are rising above my head. And Hopeful with him there just a little bit ahead calls back to Christian. He says, fear not, brother. Fear not. I feel the bottom of the river. And It is firm. It is firm. And we will pass over. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And if we're standing on Christ, even though we will someday breathe our last, the bottom is firm. I will make it through. I don't have to cheat death. I don't have to pay silly Money to get my face stretched, or my lips puffed up, or my diet—I can, I can, yeah, I can take care of myself. But I'm free from the slavery of death because Jesus is my King, and He will take me safely home. And the accuser, who is the accuser of the brethren, has been thrown death, thrown down. And Jesus, through death, has delivered us from the one who has the power of death—that is. The devil. Let me pray. Lord, uh, I thank you for this text. I thank you for my time in this text this week. (laughs) Lord, I need this. Because I think I speak for some of my brothers and sisters here. I believe this to be true but 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 sometimes midweek sometimes in in the middle of a of a stressful moment of a, of an anxious of of, of 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 when temptation seems to be billowing around me when 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 frustration when when fear grips my heart i i forget these things and i and i i, I, rem, I i'm tempted to believe the lies of the enemy but he's been thrown down he's been defeated And I need to remember that, Lord, and help this text, help this text, remind me of that. The the bottom of the river is firm. I will make it home. And right now, Lord, you, you are leaving me here and all my brothers and sisters, you're leaving us here for your divine and sovereign and good purposes to increase our joy and to use our lives as a witness to those that you're bringing to yourself for your glory and our joy. Lord, remind us of this and let us fight with this truth and let us worship appropriately so in response in Jesus name Amen